We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that, according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I am not saying this as a command, rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving advice because it is profitable for you, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also, finish the task, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion, according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardships for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. John Baker's voice in that. Yeah, did a good job, didn't he? Love it. Um, you will notice up there it says fill-in guy because that's what they always put when I speak. I tell them to. I like it. That's a title I like. But I've, uh, you should know I've acquired a new title in the last month or so. My oldest son and his wife, I guess his wife did all the hard work, gave birth to their first child three weeks ago. So I am now a grandfather. What's up with that? That means I'm officially old, but it also means for you that anything that I say today, will, you should automatically consider to be more wise than if I had said the same thing four weeks ago, right? Because granddads. Ever, everyone keeps asking, what's your grandfather name going to be? I have no idea. I still have not come up with that. My wife is owning grandma. She's owning it. She loves it. She's like, I'm a grandma. I'll be called grandma. I haven't figured it out yet. I want to go somewhere between the over-the-top cool and grandpa. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. But uh, anyway, thrilled to be here um, or up here. Usually, I'm out there with you guys. And uh, so, I've looked forward to this opportunity for a while. We are talking this morning, we are kicking off a mini-series within a larger series. We're continuing our series on 2 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 8 this morning, and you will have noticed on the screen it said, be generous. Some of you might have thought, uh-oh, generosity, we're talking about money, alarms went off when you walked in. You may have heard the story about the Red Cross helicopter that was flying over a blizzard-covered area, 
and in a clearing where it wasn't snowing very hard, they noticed a cabin that was pretty much buried in snow, and there were no tracks leading to it, no tracks away from it, whatever. Um, and they knew that an elderly woman lived there, and they thought they should stop and check in on her because she might have run out of fuel or food or something in the midst of being trapped in this blizzard. So they set down the helicopter about a mile away. It was the closest to the nearest opening they could find, and they put on their safety equipment and headed out in the midst of the storm, chest-high snow, and, and when they arrived finally at the cabin and were able to get the front door to a place where it could open, they're sweating, breathing hard, perspiring. They knock on the door, and finally the woman that lives in the cabin answers the door with kind of a skeptical look on her face, and they say, we're from the Red Cross. And she says, it's been a long, cold, hard winter. I just don't think I can give this year. <laughs> uh, and some of us walk into church, man, we're excited. We want to learn something about the Lord. We want to see if maybe you're, maybe you've not come to a place where you've put your faith in the Lord yet, and you're trying to figure out, is Christianity is it true? Is God who He claimed to be? Is Jesus really the Messiah? And some of you believe and you want to learn this morning how we can grow closer to the Lord, how we can be the more people He wants us to be, uh, more of the people that He wants us to be, and we walk in and we see something about generosity on the screen and our shoulders are tempted to slump. But we're not going to be talking about tithing this morning, not specifically. We're going to talk about something more challenging. Because I think when we think too much about tithing or giving, we get stuck with a number, a percentage, when what I think God wants of us is something much more than that. God is more interested in who we are than what we do, and He wants us to be people of radical generosity. The next couple of weeks, we're talking about generosity, and it doesn't just mean money. Your time, your treasure, yes, also your talents. But he wants us to be people of radical generosity. And, and generosity is one of those things for which people are praised at their funerals, right? It's not just that people are praised. In fact, most people aren't praised so much for how much money they made in life, but much more about what they did with that money, how generous they were, how kind they were. Those are the kinds of things we talk about. Secular culture celebrates it. Uh, one one source I saw this week, secular source, said research has shown that humans are hardwired to be generous. I don't know how you do research into the hardwiring of humans, but I think that's true. And, and the only way that could possibly be true is if someone hardwired it into us. I think the only way that sentence makes sense is if, as if, is if there is a God that hardwired us to be generous. And, by the way, God is generous, and if we are made in His image, it only makes sense that He would have hardwired us to be generous. And by the way, generosity is a massive theme in Scripture. Yeah, thank you. And as we think about the resources, the talents, the time, the treasure that God has given us, the question before us has to be, how will we invest those things? So, we're going to talk about that this morning. Let me pray, though. That's probably the best way for us to get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that we are even here this morning. We are grateful for breath. We are grateful for those that are online and watching. We are grateful for 
the fact that you woke us up this morning and that we have another day to experience life here and to experience the adventure that you invite us into of walking with you. Lord, as we gather this morning, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts through your word? It might be through something I say. It might be through something that you say directly to our hearts. It has nothing to do with what I'm saying. But would you speak to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. The passage we just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, but he's not asking the church at Corinth to be generous toward the church at Corinth. He's actually challenging them to give to the saints, the believers in Jerusalem, because the church in Jerusalem was growing like wildfire, and they didn't have the resources they needed. And Paul had also tried to raise money from the Macedonian church, and he starts by pointing to the churches in Macedonia as an example that the church in Corinth could learn from. We, too, will learn from the example of the churches in Macedonia. The big churches in Macedonia at that time, which were in northern Greece, would have been Thessalonica, Berea, and Philippi. And Philippi, of course, the letter to the Philippians, we know that. Thessalonica, the two letters to the church at the, uh, called First and Second Thessalonians, we know that. But Paul is pointing out the Macedonians' remarkable generosity to challenge the Corinthians to do the same, the church at Corinth to do the same. And he challenges us with this very same example. So we're going to make six observations from this passage this morning. The first will be the shortest of all the six we make. It's that generosity flows from God's grace. Um, Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. It's interesting. The churches of Macedonia were the ones doing the giving, but Paul says here the grace of God that was given to them, but then there's a colon at the end of verse 1 that points us to the examples of the grace that was given to the churches of Macedonia in verse 2. So let's jump right into that. Observation 2, generosity must not be tethered to our circumstances. If we want to be people of radical generosity, it can't be just when everything is great, financially or otherwise. Our natural inclinations when we think about generosity tend to be all wrong. Uh, Our natural inclinations tell us things like, well, you know, I'm supposed to be getting that raise six months from now, and when I do that, I'm going to be more generous. When I get that last kid off to college, that's going to open the door for me to do some really generous things. Or if you're a student or in a situation where you're struggling financially, you might think, I just don't have much money. Um, But when I do, I'll become generous. And if I might suggest this to you this morning, I think that's all wrong. In fact, I think just the opposite is true. I think if we are not generous when we have little, little, we're not going to be generous when we have much. Whatever we have right now, if we're not being radically generous, I don't think it gets any likelier when we have more. Verse 2, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, Paul's writing of the church of Macedonia here, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Okay, so now we're seeing that this church was under the pile, under the gun, and literally probably under the gun at the hands of Rome. Um, 
the churches in Macedonia had been under Roman control for more than 200 years, and the, the Romans were taxing them to such a great degree that it says ex- wealth, I mean, uh, extreme poverty here was their reality, and yet in the midst of that, we see a wealth of generosity on their part. First of all, first part of this verse, a severe trial brought about by affliction. A different translation calls it a great ordeal of affliction. These are really strong words. Uh, Yet a third translation translates this phrase, a trial of tribulation. We can expect that they were being persecuted by Rome, not just taxed brutally by Rome, and they were living in extreme poverty, yet in the midst of their circumstances, the wealth of their generosity overflowed, Paul writes. That's amazing. Not only that, but when they were in the midst of this severe trial brought about by affliction, and when they were in the midst of extreme poverty, they were characterized by abundant joy. Amazing. Because if we put ourselves in a situation where we were under a great ordeal of affliction and extreme poverty, it might be easy for us not to be experiencing joy. I heard a great, or I read a great definition, and I didn't write down who, who said this, sadly, it's, it's not my own thought, but I, I came across this this week. The difference between joy and happiness is so good that joy is cheerful optimism based on God. Happiness is cheerful optimism based on your circumstances, and we know that. When our circumstances are good, it's easy to be happy. When our circumstances are bad, it's easy to be unhappy, right? And yet God calls us to something greater. He calls us to joy. Joy is possible even in the midst of awful circumstances. And so is radical generosity. I've seen it. Maybe many of you have as well. If you've had the opportunity to visit places or be in the midst of extreme poverty. When my daughter was about to turn 13, it was, it was um, the, during the middle of her spring break in whatever grade she was in. This is seventh or eighth grade. I, I can't remember what the year was. But um, during that week, I was invited by a client to go, not invited, hired, <laughs> engaged by a client to go to Tanzania to oversee a video shoot there of one of the guys that was in charge of natural resources for all of Tanzania. And we were going to go to some national parks and we we're going to see all sorts of cool stuff and, and animals out in their own, in the wilderness, not in captivity. And my daughter had been a fan of giraffes since she was a little girl. Loved giraffes. It never went away. Sometimes when you're a little girl, you love an animal and then you grow up and you grow out of your love for the animal. She never outgrew her love for giraffes. Still hasn't, by the way. She's 24 and in the army and she loves giraffes. So... <laughs> I thought if I'm being asked to go to Tanzania and to places where there will be hundreds of giraffes in their own environment, and I did not find a way to take my daughter during spring break on the week that she turned 13, I imagined it might be difficult for me to ever get back in my house again. (laughs) So I called the client and said, listen, explain the situation. And he said, please, please, please bring your daughter. You pay for the flight, we'll pay for everything else. I said, fantastic, let's do it. So we went and we saw giraffes and we saw more giraffes and we saw more giraffes. But the person that was our host, the person that was second in charge of natural resources for Tanzania was a man named Saloum, wonderful man. And as we got to know him, 
he felt comfortable asking us if we would like to go visit the village where he grew up. Now, this village was literally in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. It took us hours to get there, and we made the journey into this village, and I don't exactly know how many white people ever would have been in that village before. But they rolled out the red carpet. Not literally, of course. Most of the people lived in grass huts or sheds. Interestingly, there were three kids where, two interesting things about that trip. There were three kids in that community that were wearing NBA jerseys. <laughs> what? Like, how, how does that even happen? Um, secondly, it was 80 degrees, and some of them had on, like, winter coats, because I guess that, I guess that was cold, cold there. But this was a community that where the people, you've heard about communities where people live on about a dollar a day. That's about what this worked out to. These people, they would gather bananas and walk four to five miles to tell, sell them for the equivalent of what was about a U.S. dollar in the morning and then walk home at night, and they would repeat it day after day after day. And when we arrived, and after we spent some time wandering around and meeting people in their village, they offered us bananas, which was very kind. And then the wife of the man that was sort of in charge of the village reached into a bag and pulled out a live chicken and handed it to us as a gift. And I've never received a live chicken as a gift. I'm not sure, I wasn't sure what the protocol was. And thankfully the guy that had been hired to drive the car around that we were taking, he, he knew how to handle this and he went and took a chicken. But I've never received a more extravagant gift in my entire life. I've never been more humbled by a gift, and you could go out today and spend $2,000 on me, and it would not touch what I felt, the gratitude I felt from this man and woman offering me a chicken as a gift of welcome. They had nothing. And for the rest of my life, I will remember perhaps the most extravagant gift I will ever receive came from one of the poorest humans who was full of joy and a joy to meet and a joy to spend time with. Our circumstances must not be what drive our generosity. Third observation. Our generosity reveals our worldview. For several years here at New Life, Brett has introduced this idea that I just love. I've used it with, in conversations with so many people of the upper story and the lower story. You guys have all heard it. That God has an upper story, a thing that he's doing, and that will not be stopped. God's, story, God's upper story will not. And life down here on earth is our lower story. And somehow we see how those things connect. God gives us visibility into that sometimes. But as we live with increasingly an eternal perspective, not a temporal perspective, as we live for the upper story, that's when we're going to be firing on all, all cylinders. Paul talked about this in Romans 12, chapters, or chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's pause right there. In view of God's mercies, he says, What's he talking about? Well, for the first 11 chapters in Romans, Paul has been talking about God's amazing mercies. For three chapters, he talks about the fact that all of us have one thing in common, and that is that we deserve hell. All of us. Religious people, non-religious people. Jewish people, Gentiles. Pagans, good people. Doesn't matter. 
Romans 1 through the first half of chapter 3 says all of us deserve to go to hell because of our sin, because God is holy and we are not. And then he gets to a part in the middle of chapter 3 where he says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed by faith that comes to us by faith. This amazing reality that we can be made right with God by faith, that we can be declared righteous by faith and therefore have the opportunity, the reality, to spend eternity in heaven with God despite our sinful nature because Jesus has already been punished for it. That's what he continues to talk about in 4, 5, and 6. And, and he unpacks what, what the, the amazing message of the gospel, that even though we deserve hell, we have the opportunity to, spend eternity, to, to receive forgiveness and spend eternity in God with heaven because of God's grace, because of his mercies. So Paul says, chapter 12, therefore, in view of those mercies, God's incredible grace to us that we didn't deserve, I urge you, Paul writes, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This phrase, true worship, is one that must translate oddly from Greek to English, from, the, new, from the, the language of the New Testament into English, because whatever translation you pick up, this idea of true, this is your true worship is translated differently. Sometimes it says, this is your reasonable act of service. Sometimes it says, this is what makes sense. Sometimes it says, this is what's logical. Here it says, this is your true worship. The idea is, in light of God's mercies, what makes sense what is logical, what is reasonable, is for us to present our bodies to him a living sacrifice. Must have been a shocking thought to the church at Rome, living sacrifice, because sacrifices are usually dead. And we are to present our bodies to him, everything about us, and say, God, whatever it is you want to do in and through me, do it. That's what our reasonable response to God's mercy is. Not to give him a little part of our life, not to invite Jesus in to make our life a little happier, a little better, but to say, God, my life is yours. Do with it what you want. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Not, God, I'll give you a little part of me. God, I will give you my life. Now, let's bring that back to here, into the upper story. Generosity reveals our worldview. When we give our lives to Christ, we realize that everything we have, everything we are, everything that we can do is God's, not ours. Ironically, the first time I ever spoke at New Life, years and years ago, when we were over at, at Westfield High School, it was on the topic of giving. Somehow I'm sensing a pattern here. Um, and I used an illustration that I'm going to use again now, and it's been 15, 18 years. I don't even know how long it's been. It's been a long time since I used it. But for years afterwards, people would come up to me, and they wouldn't remember a word of the sermon, but they'd say, you're the Skittles guy. Because I used an illustration about Skittles, so let's use that now. Let's imagine that you took your son to a football game, and your son says to you, Dad, or mom, would you buy me some Skittles? And you said yes, and you walked up the concession stand with your son, and you bought Skittles, and then you came back to your seat, and your son happily opened his Skittles, and you said, could I have a Skittle? And your son said, these are my Skittles. Now, 
For those of you that have been around kids much, this is not a hard scenario for you to imagine, right? This is, a, this is a pretty easy scenario to picture. And it's also very easy to picture you as the parent thinking a couple of different things, right? First of all, you're thinking, maybe you have the grace not to say it, but you're thinking, I paid for those Skittles. Those are my Skittles you're holding right there, right? Let's keep this straight, whose Skittles they are. Uh, and second, you might be thinking, I have the strength, authority, and power to take those Skittles from you if I want them. Let's keep that in mind, shall we? And third, I have the resources to bury you in Skittles. I could fill your room with Skittles. I have the money to afford enough Skittles to fill your entire room with it. And, and, and yet, when God calls us to radical generosity, sometimes we think, oh, this money is my money. Right? An upper story mindset when it comes to generosity says, all the Skittles are God's. All our money is God's. He allows us to be a steward of it. All our time, all of our resources. Verse 3, I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord. Two observations from this. First of all, the Macedonian church gave by faith. There will be times even when you're giving as the Lord leads you, where you're looking at your income and saying, yeah, we're going to give here. There are going to be times when God calls us to give radically even beyond what makes sense, to give by faith, to see a need and say, my gosh, we've been good at giving this week, this month, this year, but that, I can make a difference there. And we're going to be asked to give by faith the church of Macedonia were living in extreme poverty, and they gave beyond their ability. And they also gave of their own accord. So that's upper story thinking right there, and their worldview shows that they were living with an upper story. Is that me? Okay, good. I have some device that makes that exact ring doorbell. Somebody just walked up to your door. Okay, anyway, let's get back to the sermon. An upper story mindset. For years, I was part of a ministry. For 10 years, I was part of a ministry where we had to raise financial support so the organization could fund what we were doing. And when we got into that, it was challenging, the raising support. And looking back, I would say it was one of the greatest things God ever allowed me to be a part of. Not just to have a team that was praying for us and supporting us, but to have been in a position where we really had to trust God with our finances. It was amazing. And it was amazing watching him provide. But one of the amazing parts about it was getting to know the people on our team. And when we had to disband the team, when we decided, when the Lord led us to do something else, it was difficult. But I'll tell you just two examples. Louis Jean, a guy that lived in what I would call a modest home in Herndon, um, let us know. He wouldn't brag about this. He probably wouldn't love me saying it out loud. But he said, we're trying to get to the point where we give away 90% of our income to ministry. This was not a rich dude. How impressive is that? He said, we're not there yet. We're barely over 50 right now. <laughs> he said, disappointingly. And I was so challenged by that. And Carrie and I walked away and said, we want to try to increase the percentage of our giving every year. Haven't always been exactly successful, but we've sought it. We've tried. That's what we've tried to pursue. George Kettle was a multimillionaire, and he gave millions to ministry. And he supported Carrie and I. And when I would 
stop by his office and Tyson's, his secretary would push the button on the phone and say, Mr. Kettle, Patrick Dennis is here. And I would hear the enthusiasm in his voice and he'd say, oh, great, send him back. And I would go hang out with him. And he would, be, he would ask questions about the prayer letter that I had sent a month ago. He would ask about our ministry. He would ask if he could pray for us. We had great conversations. And, and George, when he really started to live by an upper story mindset, when he really started to understand that his skittles were God's skittles, his money was God's money, he decided he had a massive income stream. And he decided that he would put he would create a bank account called God's account and funnel increasing amounts of his income stream into that and it would all be given away. He would never take it out. He would give it all away. He was Washingtonian Magazine's Man of the Year one year because he also he paid for two fifth and sixth grade classes, paid for their college educations when they graduated, among many, many other things. But George um, went to his bank and said, I need to get a checking account that says God's account on top, not my name and address. And the bank manager said, yeah, Mr. Kettle, we can't do that. And George said, well, do you think if I went to the bank down the street, they'd be able to do that? And they go, oh, wait, 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 we think we might be able to. <laughs> so, so, suddenly, they, they figured out a way to get God's account on the checks. And, and, and you know, uh, examples of men that were living with an upper story mindset when it comes to their money. A good friend of mine passed away tragically the day before Easter this year. Um, he and his wife and family had lived by faith and lived by faith financially. He was a pastor, amazing, amazing man. And uh, both the denomination he was part of and the church he was part of had a pretty big um, life insurance policy. And so after he passed away, Carrie and I have spent a bunch of time talking to his wife, um, his widow. And she said, I'm getting all sorts of financial advice now from people because we've never had money before, but now all of a sudden with these life insurance policies, and she wanted to give a big chunk of it away, and she felt like God was telling her to. And a bunch of people around her were saying, don't do that, don't do that. And, you know, some people she respected and trusted spiritually kind of helped her think through it. But she said, I have to give this much away. I know it. What do you think? I said, Wendy, if God is making it clear to you that you need to give a chunk of that money away, you need to give a chunk of that money away. She said, we'd always lived by radical faith financially. She said, I don't want to change that now. And, and she didn't give it all away. The, their kids will be taken care of. I mean, I think it was... But I loved the upper story mindset when it comes to how she viewed her money. Observation four, generosity is a privilege most of us feel like sometimes, yeah, we got to do it, right? Got to do it. Got to tithe. Got to give. Got to support the church. Got to do it. And we do. We do. Verse 4 says, the church at Macedonia, Paul is writing, begged us for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. This is a church in extreme poverty begging Paul for the ability to help give to a church somewhere else. That's amazing. Verse 10, oops, turn the page. Verse 10 says, I'm giving advice because it is profitable for you. That's what we need to understand about radical generosity that we miss so often. It's not something we have to do. We get to do it. It's a privilege, and it's profitable for us. It's good for us. One of my life mentors, maybe my 
most substantial life mentors, a guy named Spencer Brand. I met him when I was 21, and he's been involved in my life ever since. One of the most godly men I've ever met, one of the most wise men I've ever met. And he, too, was part of that same ministry my wife and I were part of. it. So he had to raise money to make his ministry possible. And he would consistently introduce his ministry partners to people that were also raising money in areas that his ministry partners or donors might thought, think was interesting. And that's kind of at odds with the way most people would think. Like, Spencer, these are people that are supporting your ministry and you're introducing them to other people that are raising money. And he said, absolutely. The more the people on our support team give, the better it is for them. Spencer would all the time say things like, we can't outgive God. We can't outgive God. He said, don't have a yard sale. Why would you have a yard sale? If you have things people want, give it to them. Be a blessing to them. You have stuff. They want stuff. Bless them. Or how cool would it be to have a yard sale where everything was priced zero? The people that would show up would be like, wait, what? Anyway, that's a tangent. But we have the privilege of giving. It's good for us. And so when Brett stands up here and talks about money or when Preston or Sean or somebody on staff stands up here and talks about money, let us, and I'm usually out there with you, let us never question their motives. It's good for us. Jesus talked about giving a lot. Your money is a great barometer of where we are spiritually. You show me your checkbook and I'll tell you what you care about. So, it disheartens me, maybe even discourages me to hear that sometimes when Brett speaks on money, someone will write him a note accusing him of bad motives. Really? Let's be better than that. And let's, let's realize that it's a privilege for us to give. By the way, in terms of giving to this church, of course we need to do that. We want to see this church make an impact. And the more that we give to a ministry that we obviously care about, the more staff we can hire, the more things we can do, the, may, the more ways we can improve the end zone, the more we can reach the community in intriguing ways, the more we can support church plants. 12% of every dollar we give goes to church planting. So yes, it is great for us to give here. And if you're not, you should be if you call this your home. If you don't call New Life your home, you're just visiting. I'm not speaking to you right now. I'm talking to those of us that call New Life our home. Okay. Two other quick observations. Observation five, generosity flows from our walk with God. Verse five says, and they gave not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. When we give ourselves first to God, our time, our treasure, our talents, and we make Him first in our life, and we put Him in the position He deserves to be in our lives, that's when we're starting to get it right. That's when we will want to be radically generous people. And the sixth observation is gener generosity flows from gratitude. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 here as we wind down how do I keep getting in the wrong place? Hold on. Hold, please. There we go. Verses 7. He's writing to the, 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 churches, um, the church at Corinth. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. 
Paul's saying to the church, you're doing all these great things. He's praising them. Now excel in being generous. I'm not saying this is a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. And here's the last part where we'll stop. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul is talking to the people in the church at Corinth, pointing to the church at Macedonia as an example, but then he points to Jesus as an example and says that um, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. And we know what that means, that Jesus left the riches of heaven to come to earth as a helpless baby. Scripture says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man, and ultimately a man that would be tortured and killed by the people he came to save. Has there ever been a greater act of radical generosity than that? No. I'll answer my own question. Never. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. For our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. The riches that we have in Christ are amazing. And as we let that just percolate inside us more and more, as we're infused with that reality of what Christ did for us, how can our response be anything other than gratitude? And when we respond with gratitude to God's grace, we say, whatever you want me to do, I'm in. He calls us to radical generosity. Our response to the gospel will be multifaceted, but generosity has to be part of it. So let's wrap up with this. Three just kind of temperature check questions for you. And the first is just real direct. Are you a generous person? Just for you to wrestle with between you and the Lord. Might be difficult for some of you. Some of you might excel in this and excel still more. That's great. Two, are there specific ways that God might be calling you to give with more of an upper story perspective of your time, your talent, your treasures? When I said earlier that Raising support is a privilege. It's good. When Carrie and I write a support check to someone that's doing ministry, like even outside of New Life, we're thrilled to do it because we can have a ministry in a place where we aren't. We have a friend, Fletcher, that's going this summer to uh, Nepal to share the gospel, and we were thrilled to write a check to help him go because we can have a ministry in Nepal this summer. We have a friend named Sammy right now who's raising support She's going to do an internship at InterVarsity with InterVarsity at William and Mary. And if any of you want to support her, she needs to raise $4,000 total. And Carrie and I are involved in that, and we're thrilled. And we wrote the check, and we're thrilled to write the check because we get to have a ministry at William and Mary. When we give, we expand our ability. So sorry, that's getting back out of practical applications. But let me ask you, are there specific ways God might be calling you to give with more of an upper story perspective? Time, treasure, and talents. Third, let's ask the practical question here. If you're not giving here and you call New Life your home, isn't it time to start? 
And don't get caught up in percentages. Ask the question of what does it look like for me to give radically? Now, in just a minute, we're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to, we're going to share in communion together. Actually, I took communion first service, so I won't be. But um, I want you to do three things after I pray. Um, first of all, if you haven't gotten your communion cups, now would be a great time to go get them. They're on the back tables back there somewhere. But I want you to do three things. Number one, ask the Lord, is there anything I need to confess? Anything, Lord, that you're bringing to mind that I need to get right with you right now? And then secondly, Lord, is there anything you're saying to me from this message that I need to apply? And talk to him about it. But then finally, bring it all back to what matters the most, and that is thanking God for what he did for you on the cross. Thanking you that he became poor spiritually so that you could become rich. Thanking him that he took the punishment for our sin that we deserved when he died on the cross. And thank him and praise him that your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west, that he sees you as righteous because of what he did on the cross. And we celebrate that together as we take the cracker and the cup, remembering his body and blood. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you became poor so that we could be rich. And above all else, we remember that this morning. We celebrate that. We're going to celebrate that in communion together. We're going to worship you because of your incredible act of radical generosity on our part. So we thank you, Father, humbly. We thank you for your grace and mercy. And as we remember your sacrifice on our behalf, we do worship. Lord, show us ways that we can be more like you, that we can be more radically generous like you were and are. And Lord, does um, change us. We need your power to change us, your grace to change us, because we can't do it on our own. So we worship now in communion, and we celebrate, and we thank you, Jesus, for your love. Amen.